0: Psychiatrists tell us that the average person by the age of 40 has contemplated suicide at least once. And of course that's a statistic which is only another way of telling us that our world, our personal experience is full of trouble. The world is full of griefs and graves. The world is so dark, men and women cry out against the silent heavens, and no one should speak on the mystery of suffering without tears, at least in his heart, and no one should give a glib answer, for there's no complete answer in this life. Our Lord said on one occasion, what I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. A blind boy, once being teased for his Christian faith, was asked, well, if there's a God of love, who's your heavenly father, why are you blind? He gave a verse from the New Testament in reply. Even so, father, for it seemed good in thy sight. So there is no glib answer, no complete answer. And the Bible has much to say about the problem. Whole books are devoted to it. The book of Job is devoted to it. The book of Lamentations is devoted to it. And much of Ecclesiastes is about it. Psalms is full of it. The last book of the Bible, as we've already noticed, foretold trouble and strife for the believers in Christ all their days until the second advent. And that raises a question. If there is a God and if he cares for his followers, why doesn't he save them from trouble? Which is just saying that Christians ought to be the pets of the universe. But nobody likes pets because they're spoiled. And if we've ever met someone that was born with a silver spoon in their mouth that seemed hardly to have known trouble, we're not usually attracted to such people. It seems that all of us can see much further through a tear than through a telescope. And constant sunshine makes a desert. And for a Christian to be exempt from trouble would probably end up in him ceasing to be a Christian. The atheist, of course, has always said that trouble shows that God is either not all good or he's not all powerful. Part of our answer would be that for every thousand that speaks about the problem of pain, the problem of evil, there's hardly one that speaks about the problem of good. How does the atheist explain that? If you and I see one, someone walking vigorously across the road, we don't point him out as a example of health as a rule, but if we see someone on crutches, we point him out. When we have one sore finger, it's mainly that sore because we have nine good ones. But it has to be said that life is like a drafts board, a checkers board, full of dark spots, and shiny spots. I think of the story in the book of Exodus, chapter 15. It says in verse 22 that Moses led Israel onward from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. When they came to Mara, they couldn't drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Please notice, these people had been dancing three days ago, singing a song that's recorded in the first half of this chapter the song of Moses, the song of deliverance. But our days are like that checkers board. They have mornings and evenings. They have sunshine and shower. The sun abdicates to the stars and then the stars to the sun. And our troubles, they come in various shapes. These people we've just been reading about, first of all, they'd had the trouble of captivity. Then they'd had the trouble of a menacing army on chariots. And even after the Red Sea was open for them, later on water was their trouble, the lack of it. And even then when they found water, it was bitter. So trouble comes in various shapes, constantly changing its shape. And it usually concerns very vital matters. It tells us in the 24th verse, the people murmured against Moses saying, what shall we drink? They had no water. It wasn't that they had no wine. Perhaps this is why one preacher said that unless a trouble bruises us, it will not benefit us. God isn't just dealing with trivialities when he educates his children. But we must stick to that matter of the problem of good because there cannot be shadows without a light and we would not even be aware of the problem of pain but for the blessings that surround our days. The ears were not made for discord The eyes were not made for ugliness, nor the taste buds of the tongue for bitter things, nor the sense of touch for what stings. But all our senses were made to minister good to us. And life is meant to be good, as God made it. Four-fifths of the pain that comes to us today doesn't come from God, doesn't come from nature, but it comes from our own kind. Racks and whips, slavery and guns, bayonets and bombs, Avarice and greed, these are the roots of most of our pain. These things do not come from nature, only human nature. And then it's not only true that many of my troubles come from my neighbours and my own kind, but many come from myself. One part of scripture says, why does a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? As I review my life, most of my troubles have been in my own creating, my own stupidity, my own follies, my own sin and guilt has been the cause of them. But don't make the mistake, my friends, of thinking that every time trouble comes, it's because of your guilt. Do you remember? It tells us in the Gospel of John, in chapters 7, 8 and 9, about how our Lord stood one day in the temple near the court of the women by the treasury and it was there that he met a man born blind. and They asked him the question, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Christ gave an answer that showed that evil can come without it being our own fault. He said, neither this man or his parents. And then he added, but that the glory of God might be made manifest in him. So suffering does not come without a purpose, but its cause is not always our own guilt. Notice in this account in John, Jesus, as we've said, was in the court of the women by the treasury at the temple when he finds a man born blind. Here we have many of the elements of life, my friends. Suffering, that's a great element of life. Doesn't matter what one's accent is, Virginian or Chicago or Canadian or Australian, doesn't matter whether one's skin is black or white, whether we're young or old, learned or ignorant, rich or poor. We all have one thing in common, trouble. It's as prominent as the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, the clothes on our back. Perhaps, my friends, it's just as necessary. And so here Jesus at the temple finds a man whose life has been a life of suffering. It's the court of the women by the treasury. Sex, money. These are other aspects of problematic life and often a cause of trouble. At the temple, religion, the greatest blessing or the greatest curse, depending upon whether we have the kernel of it, which is faith and hope and love, or whether we just have its forms. But Jesus has an answer, you'll notice. And the answer isn't that all trouble comes because of our own fault is that God has a purpose, that the glory of God might be made manifest in him. But then again, let's come back to the issue, why is it that life is so hard for those who are trying to be so good, as well as for the others? Why doesn't God bend physical laws for the sake of his followers? Well, I guess we could conceive of a world where God corrected the results of abuse of free will at every moment that it occurred. He could turn a wooden beam into something as soft as grass if it was used to come down on a saint's head. He could make the air refuse to obey me if I was about to speak by way of insult or lying or blasphemy. But what sort of a world would that be? It would be an entirely unpredictable, unreliable world. It's true that God's not in a straitjacket. He can violate, or at least interrupt, natural law. He can work miracles. But, my friends, that's not his habit. He works far more through providence, which uses natural law, than he does through miracle. Besides, if we had a world where wrong actions were impossible, freedom of the will would be made void. And people would come to church and accept Christianity for the wrong reason. That would be tragic. God's not in the business of bribing people to be Christians. Well, let's ask another question. Doesn't God care? Listen. Love can forbear. Love can forgive. But love can never be satisfied with an unlovely object. And you and I are unlovely in our selfishness. None of us are perfect husbands, perfect wives, perfect sons and daughters, perfect churchgoers. None of us. All of us are still tainted with sin and God cannot be satisfied with sin. Love is something more stern, more splendid than mere kindness. Even a father chastises his child and the scripture says if we're without chastisement, We're not true children at all. And this human spirit of ours, it won't even begin to try to surrender to God, to surrender its self-will, so long as everything seems all right. It was C.S. Lewis that said that God whispers to us in our pleasures and he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. Tragedy, my friends, shatters illusions. The illusion that everything is all right even though we're sinful and selfish and dying and judgment-bound. The illusion that what we have is our own and enough. Our hands are so full of tawdry trinkets God cannot put in them the best things. As for him, we treat him as our parachute. They're for emergencies, that's all. Have you ever seen the cartoon of two babies dressed only in diapers and boxing gloves? They're facing each other. And one of the babies is looking at some butterflies overhead. He's oblivious to the fact that he's about to receive a punch in the solar plexus. He's watching the butterflies. Nearby there's a little dog with his tail between his legs and he's wincing. He knows what's going to happen. Those babies, the one looking at the the butterflies in particular, they represent us. We're watching the butterflies of life and suddenly we get hit in the solar plexus to bring us back to the realities of life. And what are the realities? Guilt, my friends, death, judgment. They're the realities. We must be able to handle these. And trouble is meant to help us to handle these. Trouble is God's megaphone, his siren. I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it in his book on the problem of pain. Let me quote to you from him. My own experience, said Lewis, is something like this. I'm progressing along the path of life in my ordinary, contentedly fallen and godless condition, absorbed in a merry meeting with my friends for the morrow or a bit of work that tickles my fancy today, a holiday or a new book when suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease or a headline in the newspapers that threatens us all with destruction sends his whole pack of cards tumbling down. At first I'm overwhelmed and all my little happinesses Look like broken toys. Then, slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should be in at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never intended to possess my heart, that my true good is in another world, and that my only real treasure is Christ. Perhaps by God's grace I succeed, and for a day or two become a creature consciously dependent on God and drawing its strength from the right sources. But the moment the threat is withdrawn, my whole nature leaps back to the toys. I'm even anxious, God forgive me, to banish from my mind the only thing that supported me under the threat because it's now associated with the misery of those few days. Thus the terrible necessity of tribulation is only too clear. God has had me but for 48 hours and then only by dint of taking everything else away from me. Let him but sheathe that sword for a moment, and I behave like a puppy when the hated bath is over. I shake myself as dry as I can, race off to reacquire my comfortable dirtiness, if not in the nearest manure heap, at least in the nearest flower bed. And that is why tribulations cannot cease until God either sees us remade or sees that our remaking is now hopeless. Well said. In Luke 21, we have a list of troubles that are promised for Christians. They include religious deceptions and war and economic problems, physical tragedies like earthquake and volcano, disease, persecution. And there's not one hint that the better you are, the less you'll have of these things. And there's an interesting contradiction Apparent contradiction. In the same Luke 21, it says, Some of you they shall put to death. Then it goes on to say, But not a hair of your head shall perish. My friends, what is Christ saying? How can I be put to death without a hair of my head perishing? He is saying, my friends, that not even a hair of my head shall perish without divine permission and for my ultimate good. We look at things from a short close range he looks at things from the range of eternity you know a coin can be put so close to the eye that can blot out the sun and that's what we do with our mosquito troubles they blot out hell the judgement how tragic how tragic we're such an ignorant lot we certainly don't, don't understand one ten millionth of the mysteries of nature But we're so presumptuous as well as ignorant that we expect to understand more than that much of God's providence. Why should we understand more of God's workings in providence than in creation? Well, what's the real answer? Do you remember when Christ was on the cross? Because he too was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The people cried out, let him deliver him. Let God deliver him. And God didn't. Christ cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God didn't deliver him. He did something better. God turned Black Friday into Good Friday. He took that bruised and broken body and turned it into glorified flesh. He took the crown of thorns and turned it into a crown of glory. He took the greatest tragedy the world has ever known and turned it into the greatest blessing. My friends, that's exactly what the Bible teaches about trouble. There in Luke 21, as Jesus comes to the end of the list of troubles for Christians, he says, and it will turn to you for a testimony. You see, opposition becomes opportunity. Calamities become a source of profit, of witnessing, of blessing, of glory. That's the way it is all through the New Testament. The best things there come out of the worst things. We see Christ, 40 days being tempted, without food or water, oppressed of the devil. But then he comes out filled with the Spirit to preach the good news in the synagogues of Galilee. The temptation prepared him to be a blessing to the tempted. We see John the Baptist cast into prison. And the scripture says, Then came Jesus preaching the gospel. He's a good man cast into prison and Jesus comes preaching the gospel. Yes, Jesus is saying that God overrules all things, that all things work together for good to them that love God. We find Jesus being doubted even by his cousin John. And they send a messenger, are you the one that should come? And Christ turns that into glory. His argument is not in manuscript but in man. He says, look at the blind who are now seeing. Look at the paralyzed who can now walk and move and jump. Look at the deaf who can hear. Look, look. On one occasion the Pharisees came and said, you receive sinners and you eat with them. And Christ took this attempt to destroy his reputation and he turned it into glory. He told the story, the three stories about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost boy. And he showed but it was true, he did indeed receive sinners and eat with them. But that's his glory. That's the gospel in a nutshell. This man, Christ, receives sinners and eats with them. On another occasion, a man tempted him and said, Who's my neighbor? And Jesus told the wonderful story of the Good Samaritan to teach all men how they should live, how they should love. One day our Lord said to his disciples, I will work miracles today and tomorrow and the third day I'll be perfected. What did he mean by the third day? He meant the cross. The cross was his perfection. Suffering would lead to perfectness. Remember the transfiguration? On the mountain he was talking with Moses and Elias about his death. As he talked about his death, he was transfigured. Now the disciples watching, they'd been preoccupied with self-assertion. Jesus is saying, no, not self-assertion, self-sacrifice, that's the way. Death leads to transfiguration and glory. The whole book of Acts is a hilarious book. It opens with the disciples so filled with joy through the Spirit they're accused of being drunk. Soon people are stoning Stephen, but he turns all their lies into light. His last words, our Father, lay not this sin to their charge. And they pierce the heart of one of his persecutors, Saul, who becomes Paul the Apostle. And then we find Paul in prison, there at Philippi with Silas, in the inner prison, with their hands and their feet in the stocks and their backs red raw, and they sing such high notes. God has to send an earthquake for the base, and it shakes the prison, and it shakes the jailer. And he cries, what shall I do to be saved? And the first Christian church was raised up there. And now we have the letter to the Philippians written to the people of that church in our New Testament. Remember Simon of Cyrene? One sunny day, one Easter day, walking into the city of Jerusalem on holidays and suddenly grabbed, suddenly grasped and a heavy cross placed on his back and he's toiling up Calvary. My friends, that, that sudden punch in the solar plexus was the greatest blessing of his life taught him about the Saviour and the way of salvation. He met Jesus as he bore his cross. And God permits crosses to come to you and me so that we'll surrender our self-will, so we'll empty our hands of tawdry baubles so that he can put something in there worthwhile. Eternal life. Christ. The greatest pain, my friends, is guilt. And Christ has dealt with that I want to read to you from 2nd Corinthians and the fifth chapter, which tells us that if we solve the guilt problem, my friends, then we needn't worry about the others. They'll all work together for our good. It was Luther that said about the sin problem being solved for him. Lord, now my sins are forgiven. Do what thou wilt. Now I've turned to my Bible to 2nd Corinthians chapter 5. And let me read to you verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, Because we are convinced that if one has died for all, then all died. My friends, I wonder if you understand it. It is saying that when Jesus died, we died. When the first Adam sinned, we became sinners. We inherited his guilt. We inherited his twisted nature when he lost the indwelling God. But there's a second Adam come, the Lord Jesus Christ. He too is our representative. And while we were ruined without asking for it, we've been redeemed without asking for it. If one died for all, all have died. My friends, get this good news and your troubles will shrink away into nothingness in comparison. You died for your sins 2,000 years ago in your representative. The guilt of your sins, yesterdays, todays and tomorrows, was cancelled at the cross of Calvary. You don't have to be anxious about what God thinks about you, but only what he thinks about Christ, your substitute. You're not called upon to make your peace with God. You're called upon to accept Christ, who is your peace. Listen as I read on in this chapter. Verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. You see, my friends, it's done. As Romans 5 says, while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God. It's been done. The good news is that it is done. There's no barrier between us and God except our unbelief. Believe what he's done and it's true for you. Your guilt is gone. Behold the Lamb of God that has taken away the sin of the world. All this is from God, says verse 18, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. My friends, you and I can't even count our trespasses. They're so numerous. They're so innumerable. But God doesn't count them at all. Not against us. They are counted against Christ. Verse 20, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We beseech you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. My friends, think of it, the mighty God beseeching us To accept the reconciliation. and Then the punchline. For God made him, Christ, to be sin for us, though he knew no sin, that we, who know no righteousness, might become the righteousness of God in him. My friends, Christ was treated as though he was a sinner in order that we might be treated as though we are righteous. Do you see it, my friends? He wasn't a sinner, but he was treated as one. We're not righteous, but we're treated as righteous. His being treated a sinner didn't make him one. And our being treated righteous doesn't get rid of the sin problem. We still have a sinful nature, but we're accepted in the beloved. We're perfect in Christ Jesus. We're complete in him. There's no condemnation. Every day of our lives, we stand as guiltless before the throne as Jesus Christ himself, if we believe the good news. My friends, I suggest to you today that the greatest trouble on earth is the pain of conscience, the dread of judgment, and all that's unnecessary when we hear the good news that if one died for all, all died. You remember we read Exodus chapter 15. It goes on in that chapter to say that when the people cried out, Moses prayed to God and God showed him a branch which when he put in the waters, the bitter waters were made sweet. My friend, whatever the flooding waters, whatever the bitter waters of your experience, if you'll accept the man whose name is the branch, the rod out of the stem of Jesse, Christ, the man of the tree, the man of the cross, if you'll accept him and put him and his cross into your suffering, if you'll surrender your self-will to God and believe that he makes all things work together for good, that not a hair of your head shall perish, but by his permission and for your ultimate good, my friend, if you'll believe that nightmares never last, that nothing happens by chance, that God does not originate evil, but he does overrule it, that it can be turned into good for you, that you're never alone, that God loves you, and that the trauma of earth is only permitted in order to make us homesick for heaven. If you will believe these things and find in Christ your righteousness, then, my friends, heaven begins today, even if it seems to you You are living in hell itself. God bless you.